Open your Bibles to 1 Peter. We are wrapping up our study of that great letter. And uh, it's always bittersweet when we get to the end of a, of, of a book in the Bible because you start to feel like it's part of the family. But, and it is. It's the living Word of God. It's alive. It's amazing that a letter, a letter written by a Jewish guy to a bunch of people spread out amongst the fringes of the Roman Empire over 2,000 years ago. Well, not over 2,000 years, but around 2,000 years ago, maybe just under. That that letter would have such significance to us today is amazing. It is amazing. And the reason is, is because the Holy Spirit that inspired this letter, that breathed into this letter, the Bible says all Scripture is inspired by God. When we hear the term inspired, we think like something, you know, moved us to, to write something. Like I was inspired by the sunset. But that's not what it means when it says all Scripture is inspired by God. It doesn't mean that God was, a, was the muse, that he was a, uh, something that just got the writer thinking. No, the Scripture literally says all Scripture is God-breathed. So God breathed this scripture. He used people, and it definitely has their flavor in it. It definitely had, you could tell a human being wrote it, and they wrote it in their context. However, God was the one behind the letter. God was the one behind the word. He is the word. And so this word, the reason it can apply to us today is because this isn't the viewpoint, just simply the viewpoint of a first century Jewish man. This is, the, this is, a, this is a first century Jewish man writing down what God is speaking. And the God that's speaking it lives outside of time. So the God that spoke it to this guy a couple of millennia ago had already been here. God, God's not moving through time like we are. We are moving from beginning to end. We're moving from year to year, from day to day. God is in the future. He's in the past. He's in the present. He doesn't move in a linear timeline, all right? So God has seen the future, but that's even a little deceiving to say he's seen the future. It sounds like he's gazing into a crystal ball and sees he's already there. He's there right now. He's in the present, past, and future. He was there before time. He'll be there after time. Now, if that doesn't make your head explode, we'll, we'll move on, you know? <laughs> When I was a kid and wanted to freak myself out, I would start to think about how long we'd be with the Lord. And the Bible said eternity, so I tried to imagine eternity. And it's just like there's a breaker box in your brain that will only take so much, and it just goes, snap, I can't figure that out. Because I thought, well, forever, and then ever, and then ever, and there's never an end? How does that work? It, it's, it's difficult to understand. I explained it this way. to uh, We were talking... Uh, I was talking to a younger guy in our church about the Trinity. He said, explain the Trinity to me. I said, how much time do you have? And I think if, if we were to stay here for days, we might not fully, gra- we wouldn't fully grasp the greatness of the Trinity. But, you know, the way I explained it to him is it's almost like explaining these things that are too big for our hearts and minds, that are too big for our understanding. It's kind of like we live in a, it's like trying to, going into a, a world full of two-dimensional people. You know, just flat 2D characters and stepping into that world and trying to explain to them what it's like to live in a 3D world. Like, it, 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 it's so difficult for our minds to comprehend, and yet by faith we grasp it. And we begin to see that God has not only, is not only beyond these things, but he did come in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came to show us the Father to explain to us a God that was beyond explanation, to show us what he looked like. And so I think as we read these letters, we see pictures of God. We see his heart. We see his character, not just to the people that the letter was originally written to, but to us. So as we come to the end of this letter in 1 Peter chapter 5, you wouldn't think we'd be able to squeeze any juice out of these last two verses because it's basically just an outro. It's just a... Uh, an end, you know, uh, it's, it's the last thing he's going to say. And it's not really any sort of teaching. It's not really any sort of exhortation. It's just a, you know, just a goodbye. But I want just to use that those last couple sentences to bring back what we've learned throughout the whole letter. And uh, in these last few words that he says, let's start in verse 12. We read verse 12 uh, last week, but let's read it again. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, 
I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Now, when he says, she who is in Babylon, you might wonder, well, who is she? Who's she that he's talking about? He's talking about the church. He's not talking about one lady, all right? He's not saying there's a special lady. You know who I'm talking about. No, he's talking about the church. So just, you know, just like our old English, we would, you know, if we're talking about a city, we'd use the feminine for the city or a ship or whatever. The church was always referred to in the feminine. So when he says, she who is in Babylon, he's talking about the church in Babylon. However, most modern scholars believe that when he said, and, and, and ancient ones as well, that when he said Babylon, He's not referring to literal Babylon, but he's referring to, to Rome. A lot of scholars believe he was in Rome at the time. That's where he died. That uh, Babylon was code for Rome. Now, there are other scholars who believe he was literally in Babylon over in, in the Assyrian part of the, the empire. If that's, if that's the case, doesn't spoil a thing we're going to talk about tonight, all right? I, I believe he was in Rome, but if you want to believe he's, he was in literal Babylon, that's fine too. We can all play nice together. The, this, the word will still be the word, all right? And we're not going to base a whole doctrine on whether he was in Rome or not. I believe he was, but let's just move on. He goes, he says, she who's in Babylon sends her greetings to you. Uh, chosen together with you sends greetings. So does my son Mark. So the thing here that, that, that pops out to me, now listen, if he's in Rome, it wouldn't be unusual for him to refer, at least not in my mind, for him to refer to Rome as Babylon, because certainly in the book of Revelation, by the time John writes that letter, um, they're referring, you know, or at least the angels in heaven are referring to Rome as Babylon. Babylon just being kind of code for, you know, the evil, <laughs> not just the evil, but, but man's government, man's attempt to do something, the, almost the spirit of Antichrist. This, this idea that there was a, there's another empire, a worldly empire certainly would fit the description of Rome. But even if Peter finds himself on the other side, on the east side of the empire, in what was not so great Babylon anymore, either way, he is surrounded by people that don't believe what he believes. He's surrounded by people that oppose what he believes. He's writing to a group of people, as you've been with us through these weeks that we've studied this letter, you've found out he's, he's writing to a group of people that are opposed by everybody around him. The question that comes to us today, because we live in a society that in large part has moved from the cultural norm that everybody goes to church. Everybody is kind of, uh, you know, expected to be at church. If you're not at church every Sunday, you're at least there at Christmas and Resurrection Sunday. We've moved from that perspective now to a society that, yes, is in many ways pluralistic, but a large chunks of our society don't believe in anything, really. I mean, there's large chunks of society that will tell you, uh, no, I don't believe there is a God, or I believe there's something up there, I don't know what it is. But whereas Canada, for a long time, was a culture where everybody kind of, I mean, there was Protestant and Catholic, but, you know, there was this idea that, you know, everybody was part of this religious norm, if I could say that. We've moved past that. Not only are there different religions, but there's people who would claim no religion. I don't think that's a terrible place for us to be because we are the ones that get to preach the gospel. And hey, what does a farmer love if not a good field, right? So if we can't, if we can't get excited that the field is ready to preach the gospel, there are people that need to know Jesus. In fact, if you were to phone people, you know, 40, 50 years ago, phone around and say, what religion are you? There'd be a bunch of people that would say Christian, but would have no real evidence of, Christ, of Jesus in their life. You know that. There'd be a bunch of people that say, I'm Christian because they weren't anything else, or because their parents were, or because they went to church on special holidays, but they had not given their life to Jesus. So at least now, there's people that know where they're at. At least now, there's people that, that are either in or they're out. Well, that gives you a great opportunity to introduce them into Jesus, to introduce them to the great salvation that we've seen, to, to the wonderful message of the gospel. That's not a bad place to be in. The only difficulty is, no longer is it normal 
for you to use Christian terms. No, more, no longer is it normal for you to get your Bible out on a coffee break at work. No longer is it normal for, for someone to say, what are you doing on Sunday morning? And you say, I'm going to church. That's not normal anymore. So you're having to learn how to adjust to a culture that is not, it's not conducive to the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. In fact, we go countercultural. We have a different outlook on life, don't we? If you're following Jesus, you figured out you don't fit in. And that's okay. God created humanity in his likeness. He created us to be like him. And we've strayed a far, far distance away from that. But Jesus came that we might be brought near to him. In fact, the scripture says those that were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. That's good news. When Peter writes this, he writes, you know, the church in Babylon greets you. Like I said, whether he's talking about literal Babylon or whether he's talking about Rome as a metaphorical Babylon, either way, these are cities that aren't, aren't conducive to the gospel, that, 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 you know, that were not created and, and were not facilitated by leadership that believes in one God, believes in, in a God above all things. They believe in many gods. They believe in many different things. So how does a church function in a culture that is in opposition to what they believe? We've read through this whole letter. He talks about how to handle it when you're put on trial for your faith. How to handle it when someone asks you, why do you have that hope? How to handle it when someone persecutes you, even when you're doing right. But I just want to talk for a minute about this culture that God's put us in. I want to talk about our place in it. The times we need to understand that God put us here for a reason. And the times we need to understand that this is not our final home. You know, I'm a dual citizen. I've lived every day of my life in Canada. I was born in Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan. Grew up in Loon Lake, Saskatchewan and Lloydminster, Alberta. Those are, those are my two towns. I've never lived anywhere else. And yet I have U.S. citizenship. I have a U.S. passport. My son has dual citizenship. I have to file taxes to both countries come tax season. That is not something I love to do. <laughs> I don't make money in the States, but they still make me file taxes. So I used to think that being a dual citizen was just one big gravy train, nothing but icing. I have two passports. I felt like James, you know, James Bond or, you know, born or whatever. You know, I felt like I was special. Now I have to file two tax returns. It's more of a hassle than anything. But it is nice to say, you know, when I'm going into the States, I can show them a U.S. passport and they say, welcome home, even though I've never lived there. <laughs> but I've often been asked, you know, if you had to choose one, which would you choose? Well, the answer for me is pretty simple because Canada is the only home I've ever known. So to me, if I had to choose one, I, I, if someone were to ask me, what are you? I'd say Canadian. But we all have more than one citizenship. And I'm not talking about nations on the planet. Our citizenship, the Bible says, is now in heaven. And it says that the new Jerusalem, that's the city of God in heaven, not, not Jerusalem over there in Israel, but the new Jerusalem is our home. In, the, in fact, it says it's the mother of us all. So the motherland is the city of God. We're here. We're not there right now. There will be a time when we're there, but we're not there. We're here. So what do we do? Because we're not on vacation here. You figured that out, right? Does this feel like vacation to you? We're not on vacation. We've, we're, we live here. God wants us to live here. In fact, Jesus prayed this, John 17. He prays, Lord, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. If before that, he says, they're no more part of the world than I am. They're no, more, they're no more a part of this world than I am. And anybody that saw Jesus knew, man, he's not, he's not of this world. And he said, these disciples of mine are no more of this world than I am. They're just as, there's just as much strangers as I am. Then he says, to, he says, God, Father, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. But I ask that you keep them from the evil one. I want you to remember that because that is so important. That God, his desire for you is not necessarily just the great escape. It's not just to get you out. It's to keep you here. For as long as you draw breath or until he returns, it's to keep you here. But then he says, but he's going to keep you from the evil one. 
That doesn't mean that you won't come in contact with evil. If you've been reading this letter with us, you found out that they, they had to suffer some things that were done to them unjustly. They felt the result of evil. But the evil one could not touch what mattered. Couldn't harm them. Couldn't keep them from the grace of God. Couldn't keep them from the plan of God. Couldn't keep them. I couldn't pluck them, as Jesus said, out of his hand. That's so huge. You have to know that no matter how much evil you experience or you see, Jesus has already prayed for you. That you would be kept from the evil one. So we're here. <laughs> we've, we've set up camp. We are ambassadors you know, when, when uh, our country, Canada, sends an ambassador to another country, they have to unpack their suitcase, don't they? When, they? when they are the official ambassador to that country, they move there, they get a place, they settle down. They realize they, they're not here forever. They may get called back. They, they're a citizen of a different place. They represent another country. But while they're there, you don't just live out of a suitcase the whole time. You unpack your bags, you put them in the, the drawers, you put them in the, and, and, I mean, I wish Tia was here right now because she'd tell you, she does that as soon as we get to a hotel room. I live out of the suitcase the whole time. I don't want to pack and repack. It's already in my suitcase. We're here for three days. There's no need for us to involve drawers in this equation. It's not necessary. I know where to find stuff. And my suitcase is always messier coming home than it was going there. But we're doing laundry as soon as we get home, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Unless I get pulled over by customs, in which I'm very embarrassed. And she's more embarrassed than I am because she has to live with me. But she unpacks and puts them in the drawer. Well, I don't do that. But if I were to go live somewhere for months or years, I'd unpack my bags. I'd make my home there for a while. Here we are. Bags unpacked. Living in houses, living in this place, we don't know how long we're going to be here, but we know we're here, and we know God put us here. But how do we act? Peter said a few things through this letter that we need to pay attention to. He said, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. In fact, let's, let me read that again. Let's read it back in 1 Peter, earlier in the letter. You okay with being called an alien or a stranger? <laughs> You okay if somebody asks you to take them to your leader? We should be ready to do that, hey? I love that he calls us. Um, in fact, you know what? We should start verse 9. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The reason you're his people, the reason he's left us here is so we proclaim something. We start to proclaim his excellency. What does that mean? You tell people who he is. You tell people about all the good things he he is and does and has done. His excellencies, that's his character. That's his nature. that's, That's his glory in action. Then he says this, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, for you were once not a people. What that means is you were once not a, an ethnic group. You weren't a race. You were a, bunch of, a mixed bunch of people from all different nations. We were once not a people. We weren't a tribe, but now we are the people of God. We once were, not, we were nothing. We were scattered. We were a bunch of mongrels from different countries, but now we are the People of God, we're his tribe, we're his family. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. And then look, he says, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. And this should be your outlook. I live here, I belong here because God put me here and God called me here. But when it all comes down to it, I'm an alien. Alien means I'm from a foreign land. This is not my true home. This is, this is not where I'm from. This is not my true citizenship. I'm in Canada, but, but my true allegiance is to, is to him. I'm of a different kingdom. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war 
against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So he's called us not to form our own community far away from everybody else, but to be amongst the people. When he says Gentiles, he's talking about people that are apart from God's covenant. That's what a Gentile was, somebody who wasn't part of God's covenant. See, we were all Gentiles. We weren't Jewish. We were all Gentiles until Jesus brought us in. We were the wild branch grafted in to the seed of Abraham. We were brought into the family of God, the commonwealth of Israel, he says. So now when he says Gentiles, he's talking about everybody that's separate from a covenant with God. Keep your behavior excellent amongst them. So he's telling us we need to be amongst them. We need to be out there. We need to live with people that are not just like us. Let them see God in you. Let them see Jesus through your actions. And he says, stay away from that stuff, those fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. See, a lot of this letter, we've been talking about those that are waging war against their physical bodies, putting them to death, putting them in prison, beating them, whipping them. But you know what's waging war against your soul is not necessarily the people that want to do you harm. What's waging war against your soul is this constant bombardment around us that seeks to turn us and pull us away from the God of our fathers. When you turn on the television and what you see is an over-sexualized, under-committed, a view of, of humanity that is so far from God's original plan and, and you fall in love with it because it's entertaining. I'm not saying everything on TV is bad. I'm just saying what happens is, is, is throughout the day you've seen advertisements, you've seen uh, entertainment, you've seen things going on, you've read things. All of these things are, are pulling you in different directions, trying to present a worldview that's different from the way we were created. God created all these things. God created sexuality, but he created it for a purpose. It's been twisted. God created the gold and the silver and the diamonds and all of that, and yet people turned to those things and started worshiping them, putting them above God. God created us to enjoy life, and yet we've twisted the good things he's created. Now, here's the good news. Jesus came to redeem that which was broken, to redeem that which was lost. And when you come into his family, you start to see things the way he sees them. But then you go back into the world and you are being assaulted. Your soul is at war. Because all around you, you're being buffeted and punched by a different way of seeing it. Whether it's the images you see, whether it's the things you hear, the Lord's name being taken in vain, a magazine photo that's just a little too racy and you linger a little too long, gossip in the workplace or violence on a movie. If all these things are beginning to wage war against what God has created you to be, he says, stay away from the stuff that wages war against your soul. Know that your soul is valuable to God. Your soul is that, is that place where God wants to, to speak through your spirit and your soul will obey. Your soul is your mind, your will, your emotions. Your soul, your mind is being renewed by the word of God. It's learning how to trust again. It's learning how to love. It's learning how to, to worship God. And yet it's constantly under assault. And you feel it. And you say, hey, wouldn't it be easier if we could just go away, just all of us go start, just build a castle in the mountains. We never have to deal with all that stuff. We never have to deal with all that outside stuff. And that's the thing. God never designed us to isolate ourselves from the world he died to save. He put us here so that the world would know him. You guard your soul. Actually, you entrust your soul to him and he'll guard it. You trust that if you're going to follow him, he could take care of you. We're not here to escape. We're here to show the world Jesus. I believe Jesus is coming again. I believe he's coming soon. I don't know what soon looks like. Soon to me is not God's soon. It could be tonight.
could be uh, 50 years from now. I don't know. All I know is it's soon. Our time is short. We know that. But guys, even knowing that, if we live with an escape mentality, we won't plant because we think we won't have time for the harvest. You have to act as if there's going to be harvest next year. And keep planting into the world that God puts you in. Until he comes back. Because you know, he comes back and finds you planting seed. He's going to say, you idiot, why are you planting seed? Didn't you know I was coming back? He's going to say, well done. That's what I left you here to do. Good work. You, you will have lost nothing. Do you think we're all going to get to heaven? He says, well, thank God you, you didn't waste your time on stuff that was going to happen in 2017. Let's have fun now. No, when we get up to see him, he's going to reward the faithful. And we read this, guys, we read this. Peter seemed pretty convinced that Jesus was coming back in his lifetime. And do you know what? It didn't harm him. <laughs> Believing that Jesus was coming back in his lifetime didn't do him any harm. It did him good. Either way, like we said so many times in this series, whether or not it's the last generation, it's your last one, it's your last chance. You won't get another shot. There's no reincarnation. You're not going to come back as a butterfly. You're not going to come back as a warthog. You are who you are. You got one shot right here. And you don't know if you have tomorrow. Redeem the time for the days are evil. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain. The church in Babylon greets you. This church that's, that's not in Jerusalem. They're not in this center of, of worship to Jehovah, to Yahweh. They're in a different place with different beliefs. And Babylon plays heavy in church history and in, in, in Jewish history. Because as you've read the Old Testament, you know that Israel was split into two, two parts. After Solomon, Solomon's Solomon sinned and turned from God, and so his sons followed in that wrong path as well. Israel, the northern kingdom, went one way. Judah, the southern king went, kingdom, went another way. Israel fell away from God earlier than Judah did. Well, Judah, kept, Judah lived in a ping-pong existence. They came back a few times. So Israel fell away, and they were taken by the Assyrians. They were scattered. The Assyrians were a brutal, brutal empire. Judah, much later in their history, were taken captive by the Babylonians. God told them, look, I gave you this land. I told you it was holy. You've defiled it. You've, you've worshipped other idols and other gods. There's going to be a period of time where we're gonna, you're going to be taken from your land, and then I'll return you. It's kind of a buzz chapter right now is Jeremiah 29. People are digging into it again, which is cool. In fact, we'll, we'll maybe talk about it tonight. Uh, we all know Jeremiah 29, 11, because if you've graduated and you were a Christian teenager, somebody gave you a teddy bear that said it. <laughs> teddy bear with a graduation cap, Jeremiah 29, 11 on the belly. When I talk to new believers and you say, what's your favorite verse? It's either John three sixteen or Jeremiah 29, 11. And hey, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We know Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. And we know he says, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give for good, not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. What a wonderful promise. We don't usually read anything beyond that. There's been a, a few good teachings lately that have really dug into the rest of the chapter. I know you've probably dug into it, but well, let's read it tonight just for the sake of some context because you know when the Israelites or the Jews were taken to Babylon, they were taken in stages. The Babylonians weren't like the Assyrians. The Assyrians were very scorched earth. They took the Israelites away as slaves. And uh, they would sometimes grant them mercy, but, you know, it would have been a hard life. The Babylonians conquered a large swath of territory, not only by military might, but they had a, they had a method they had a method of taking in every culture that they conquered. Rome did that as well. Alexander did that when he conquered through uh, the Greek and Macedonian Empire. What, what the Babylonians did well was they'd go to this new culture and they'd take the people away. They'd start out with their best and their brightest. They'd take the nobles. They'd take the educated. 
They take the young, strong, and, and educated, and, and they would train them up in the Babylonian system. Then they take the, you know, the, they take the tradesmen, the worksmen, they take them. Then they take the rest of the, the yokels, all right? So you see that they did that with Judah, Judah. They did it in waves. And one of the first waves were these young noblemen raised to rule, raised to be in positions of power. And that was guys like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, although their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We call them the three Hebrew children a lot of times. Daniel and those three guys were actually born to really high families in, in Judah. They were born in, in some of the leading families. So Babylon took them first, entered them into their schools. Because the idea is this, if you really want to conquer a culture, if we just take this culture and take them to Babylon and crush everything they've believed and just, and just treat them like dirt, here's what's going to happen. They'll resent us and they'll rise up against us someday. But... If we could take their best, their brightest, educate them in our system, teach them our language, teach them our way of doing things, they'll become like us. And we'll let them keep some of their little idiosyncrasies and cultural traditions, but we're going to try to turn them into Babylonians. We'll let them keep some identity, but we're going to slowly transform them to think like us and to be like us. Which is really interesting because that's what the world seeks to do now. The peg that's sticking out gets hammered in, right? Fit in. Be like everybody. Whereas the scripture in the New Testament says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Don't be conformed to this world. And the world is going to be hitting you over and over again, trying to conform you. Don't conform to the world. You don't fit. So they bring over Daniel. They bring over Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. You know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they stood in front of this great statue of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor, the Babylonian king. And they, were, they said, everybody, when you hear our music play, then you all have to bow. You ever wonder why it was such a big deal that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow? It's not that they were the only three there that didn't bow. There might have been other people didn't bow. But the important thing is, is that they were three rulers of provinces. They'd been put in positions of major power already. They weren't three random Hebrew kids at that time. The Bible says they, at that point, were governing, were managing provinces. So when those three don't bow, you've got a problem. Daniel is a man that's elevated to the, to the highest positions of government in Babylon. He is a, he's an advisor to the king. And yet, there are rivals that, that, that are jealous of him. And because they can find no law that he breaks, they create a law. Let's say it's illegal for you to pray to anyone but the king. Well, that's the dumbest law I've heard, but they, they managed to pass it. Daniel gets thrown to the lions. Well, God rescues him. But I want you to see that there was this constant pressure for these guys to fit in. When they first get there, you remember, they first get there and they say, we're going to educate you in our system. We're going to have you eat our food. Now, their food was offered to idols. They had wine and meat that had that had some, some uh, implications. It was not a, it was, you know, many of them were offered to idols and, and, and offered in sacrifice. And, and, and so Daniel and his buddies say, we're not going to eat your food. We're not going to eat your meat. We'll just eat vegetables and water, but we'll be stronger than you at the end of the period. And they were. Through all of this, the Jews become part of Babylon, but they're separate. By the time it comes time for them to come home, there's a great number of them that come home rejoicing, but there's a great number of them that never came back. You see this even in the New Testament. You see fights between the Hellenist Jews and the, and, uh, the Hebrew Jews. Well, the Hellenist Jews were those that kind of gave in after Alexander's empire. One of his, uh, a couple of his descendants, his generals that came after him conquered that area again, or took over, ruled that area, he had conquered them. And some of those Jews just fit in with the Greeks rather than keeping their culture. Well, many of those Jews stayed in Babylon. 
There were those that would go to the river every day. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. They would go to the river every day and they'd look back to their homeland. They'd look back to Zion. And the Babylonians say, hey, why don't you sing us one of those folk songs from back home? Hey, yeah, you, you, you know those... Uh, those Jewish songs you sing, like, oh, da, 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 da. just play that for us. And they said, we hung up our harps. How can we sing the songs of Zion when we're here? Yeah. That wasn't everybody, though. There were many that just gave up and said, we're in Babylon, let's be Babylonian. Here's the challenge for you today. You're in Babylon. You have three options. Number one, you start your own commune. You're in Babylon, but you don't associate with anyone else. You never unpack your suitcase. We're out of here. We're out of here probably next week. Probably this fall, we're out of here. So I'm not going to settle in. I'm not going to make friends. I'm not going to invest in my community. I'm just going to, we're separate. And you don't connect with anybody outside of that. That's one of your options. Your second option is you can totally integrate and you can become just like the world. But Jesus said, if the salt becomes, doesn't, is not salty anymore, what's good for it? What's it good for? He says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the, you're the light of the world, the salt of the earth. But if the salt isn't salty anymore, what's the point? It's no good anymore. Your third option is this. Your third option is you recognize that God puts you here. And you recognize that you're different and you will always be different but you've been called to live in a culture that's not your own and to represent the culture of heaven to these people. You see, salt's no good if it stops tasting like salt, but it's also no good if it never interacts with the food. Right? <laughs> salt is no good if it stops being salty, but it's no good if it stays in the bag. Salt needs to be placed with the meat. You've got to integrate with society. You've got to be out there. You got to make friends. You got to do jobs. You got to somehow be involved. Sow some seeds in the community that God's placed you in. Sow some seeds in the nation you've placed you, God's placed you in. Because how can we harvest where we've never planted? Am I right? So here's what God says to them. Jeremiah 29. See, by Jeremiah 27, there's a prophet and he stands up and he looks everybody in the face and he says, God says this, we're going to Babylon, but it's only two years. Two years and we'll be out of there. So don't listen to the king. You don't have to do a thing, they say. Don't unpack your bags. We'll be out of there soon. Jeremiah says, boy, if that prophecy comes true, that'd be swell. But I don't think it's going to turn out that way. Jeremiah has a, a, a wooden yoke on his shoulders. He says, this is what's going to happen. There is a yoke being placed on us. It's the yoke of Babylon. This prophet is all, you know, he's got good news. And people like to listen to people with good news, right? So this prophet says, we'll be out of here in two years. He has the guts to step up to Jeremiah and break the yoke. Jeremiah says, you broke this wooden yoke. Now there's going to be placed an iron yoke on us. He says, not only that. But you, Mr. Fancy Pants, that's got this word from the Lord, I'll give you a word from the Lord, you'll be dead within the year. And he was. We don't have those showdowns quite as much here in 2016. <laughs> he was dead. Jeremiah said, here's what the Lord says, in 70 years he'll bring us home. Boy, I love that two years. That two years sounds good. 70 years sounds rough. Seventy years means many of us are going to die there. There are 50, 60 years old, year olds that heard that. That's their life. That's it. But here's what God says to them in Jeremiah 29. We're not going to isolate one verse from We're going to read the whole, well, not the whole thing, but we'll read a chunk of it. Verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent in this exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. It's interesting, isn't it? They're wondering if they should unpack. Should we settle down? 
He says, go ahead, build houses, plant gardens, get married, let your kids be married. Don't live this isolationist existence that is just constantly saying, I'm not going to accept this. I'm waiting till I go home. We're going home, guys. Our home is not here. Our home is with Jesus. Our home is with God. There's going to be a day where we all go home. But if you can't embrace the fact that God put you here for now, for this reason, because he wanted a light on this planet. He wanted a light in this city. He wanted to put himself. In fact, the Bible says that Christ is the head of the church, which is the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. Grasp that for a minute. God wants to fill everything. Christ wants to fill everything and he wants to be in everything. How does he do it? Through the church. The church is the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. Embrace this fact. We are the church. We are God's method of filling the earth. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters have covered the sea. How does that happen? By the people of God filling the earth with the glory of God. We are his representatives. The Bible says that we are in the middle of darkness but Christ, and, and the eyes of the world have been blinded so that they would not believe the light of the gospel. But he says that God who has shone light and said let there be light and light was in the darkness has shone his light into our hearts to show the glory of God in the reflect, reflected in the face of Christ. So no matter how much you look around and say, it's dark, it's dark, it's dark. He says, don't forget you serve a God who looked into darkness itself and said, let there be light. And there was. And now God has said, let there be light. And he chose you to show the glory of God in the face of Christ. We are God's method of light infiltrating darkness. Build houses. Plant your gardens. Get married, let your kids get married. He doesn't tell them to marry the Babylonians. <laughs> they're talking, they're marrying the other Jews. They, they, they're getting in. Then he says this. Seek the welfare of the city which I've sent you. I've heard people gripe and gripe and gripe when Lord Minster was riding high on oil prices. Gripe and gripe and gripe. Oh, you know, most of the Lord's problems are from money. Money just magnifies the problems that are already there. You know now, because Lloyd Miss has hit a hard time, and, and has this turned into a utopia? Oil prices are down. People have lost their jobs. Have people all of a sudden turned into perfect people? No, they haven't. So I, I was with people when they said, we should pray. We should pray that, that uh, Lloyd Mister hits some hard times so people will turn to God. Listen, if you want people to turn to God, go out and preach the gospel. Right? Go preach the gospel. Amen. Hard times will come. Sure. You don't need to pray for it. Pray the right thing. Pray what Jesus told you to pray. Nowhere in the Word, nowhere in the New Testament does he tell you to pray for that. Where'd you get that idea? Stop trying to help God come up with new ideas and just obey what he told you to pray. Pray that the eyes of those that are blinded would be opened. Hey, if the problem in Lloydminster is greed, and I agree, it's a problem. It's a real idol in our city, as it is in most cities. If that's a problem, pray that people would turn to Jesus. Preach that Jesus is the only thing you'll ever need. Preach that they would turn idols into a living God. Turn from idols to a living God. Look what he says here. He says, pray for the welfare of your city because that's how I want to bless you. I'll use your jobs to do it. Praise God. God, I shouldn't pray for Babylon. It's an evil empire. Yeah, but they got you for a little bit. So I'll bless them because you're in it. God, the Babylonian king is a wicked man. I'd never vote for him. He's a bozo. He's proud. He's the most arrogant man I've ever met. He's wicked. Daniel, you should never give that man good advice. You should only give him bad advice. Daniel goes and gives him the best advice he has. 
The Hebrews that are put in place of position do their job well, better than anybody else. They contribute to the welfare of an evil empire. How does that work? Because they're not working for the empire, they're working for God. They're serving Him. God said to even slaves in the New Testament, He doesn't condone slavery, but He speaks to the slaves because church was full of slaves. They were some of the people that got the largest bit of revival was the slave community. And He says to them, guys, listen to this. Because where else could they come and find out that they had value and they had worth? And they were sons, not slaves to Christ. And he says to them, listen, guys, your masters not, may not pay you a dime, but you work as if you're working for me and I'll pay you back. What a valuable and vital lesson. Verse 8 says this, and we're closing with this thought in the next few, next few minutes. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found for you by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore from all the nations, from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to this place from where I sent you into exile. What a powerful thought. And that verse takes on new meaning, doesn't it? It's wonderful to, to think of that verse just in, I know that God has a future for me, but think of it in its context as well. What's he saying? You worry, you think you've been abandoned, but you haven't been abandoned. You say, God, why, God, why would you put us in this place? We're surrounded by people that don't believe in you. Surrounded by people that don't respect, don't, re, don't honor you. And he says this, guys, don't you worry about this. You're here for a little bit, but I'll bring you home. For I know I have good plans for you. I have plans for your future and plans for your hope. When you feel surrounded by a culture that seems to be waging war on your senses, on your mind, on your heart, on your spirit, know this, you have not been abandoned. I pray that you not take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. God has said, look, I put you here for a reason. You're my people. I I put you in Lloyd Minster. I knew I put you there. I moved you there for a reason. You're supposed to be in Lloyd Minster in 2016. For I know the plans I have for you. God, you must not know the plans you have for me. Have you ever been to my workplace? Look at these people I'm with all day. I know the plans I have for you. God, you, you, you look, how can, well, look at what Canada's doing. Look where we're going. Look at America. Look, look at the way the world. I know the plans I have for you. Stop worrying about the plans they have for you. I've got plans for you. You're my people. Don't you worry that I put you here in this time for such a time as this. You know, when Esther said to Mordecai, or when Mordecai said to Esther, for perhaps you've been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. We quote that now because we're in the kingdom of God. But you remember the kingdom he's talking about was an evil Persian kingdom. Perhaps you've been brought into that kingdom, a godless, worldly, pagan kingdom for such a time as this because God needed somebody on the inside. God needed somebody who could hear his voice and speak his word with boldness, even if it cost them their life in the midst of a perverted and wicked Persian empire. Her husband? Maybe you might recognize this guy, her husband, that she's so afraid to go and see because he hasn't invited her and she could die if she comes without being invited. That's the same guy that invaded Greece. And when the bridge is washed out, as they tried to cross the hell's pond, as the, as the bridge is washed out, he said, bring me the guys that were working on the bridge. Chop their heads off. Now bring me some whips and bring me some shackles. Okay. Whip the river. A thousand times, whip the river. Put shackles on it so that it can know, I own you, river. This is the crazy husband that Esther has to go and say hi to. 
I've heard people describe the, 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 the story of Esther as a beautiful love story. Sure. I don't see the beauty in that love story, but I'm so thankful that Esther obeyed God. And Mordecai says, hey, maybe this is why God brought you into his kingdom for such a time as this. He wasn't talking about the kingdom of God. He was talking about a wicked kingdom, but God wanted his people to be the difference. Perhaps God put you in Canada for such a time as this. You look around, you guys at work in rough places, you ladies that work in places where everything's talked about except good things. You people who work and, and are surrounded by people that, that give no respect or honor to God. Perhaps you've been placed there for such a time as this. Don't seek to escape. Seek to plant. Seek to shine. Seek to proclaim. If all we're trying to do is escape the planet, why are we still here? What's the point? Shouldn't we have just got raptured the moment we got saved? Why are we here? Don't you think God's in charge of when we, when he, when we go home, when he comes and gets us? You think he's in charge of when Jesus is going to return? I'll tell you, he is. Do we have a part to play? Yeah, we do. The gospel's got to be preached, amen? In fact, the Bible says we should be looking forward and hastening the return of Christ. I would argue that we hasten the return of Christ by going and preaching the gospel wherever it needs to be preached. But ultimately, the Father's the only one that knows the time. Jesus said he didn't even know. He said, it's up to my Father. It's not even up to me. It's up to my Father. Wow. If something's above Jesus' pay grade, I don't think it's in my <laughs> realm. But he says this, I don't ask that you take him out. Jesus could have asked that. He could have said, Lord, as soon as they believe, get them out of here. But he said, I don't ask that you take them out, but I ask that you keep them. And when you feel like you're in the midst of a quagmire and a disgusted, twisted culture, think this. Remember that there is a God who says over you, go ahead, build a house, plant a garden, live your life, shine your light, because I know the plans I have for you and they're good. Now I know the plans I have for you in this place, and it's good. And I've got a future, and I've got a hope for you. Hang on to that, amen? Stand up with me.